91.3 KXCI Tucson, Real People, Real Radio. Hello, Tucson. Thanks for joining us on Broad Perspectives Radio, 91.3 KXCI Tucson, a program by women, about women, but for everyone. And you can learn more on the Broad Perspectives Radio program page at kxci.org. This is Aspen Green with my co-host, Kathy Harris, and we are really happy to have with us today Caitlin Schmidt, a former reporter at the Arizona Daily Star, starting a new chapter in her life as the co-founder of the Tucson Agenda, a new business model for local news. For daily news readers like us, Kathy, this is really exciting to have a new source for the news. It is very exciting, and I am so happy to have Caitlin here. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Caitlin Schmidt is a co-founder of the Tucson Agenda, a Substack newsletter that offers a clear-eyed look at the decisions that affect Tucson and Tucsonans. Caitlin is a 2014 graduate of the University of Arizona School of Journalism. She was an investigative and then solutions journalism reporter at the Arizona Daily Star for almost nine years, and she's won dozens of awards for her reporting. In 2019, she became well-known for producing a six-story, five-podcast series about efforts to stop sexual misconduct at universities. That was under Title IX. I remember that. That was a great series. She also wrote solutions-based stories about reproductive health education and Pima County programs that help people get out of jail and back on track with their lives. She's now also teaching at the University of Arizona School of Journalism. Caitlin recently left the Arizona Star, as you mentioned, Aspen, to start the Tucson Agenda, a newsletter for us Tucsonans, and we're very excited to hear more about that today. Caitlin, welcome to our show. Thank you again for having me. It's always great to be here. We're so excited to have you here again. But before we get into your exciting new venture, let's talk a little bit more about you. You've been involved in journalism for about nine years. Tell us, when did you decide you wanted to be a journalist and what attracted you to it? You know, I've always loved writing and I dabbled in journalism a little bit in high school and then kind of pursued other interests. When I first moved to Tucson in 2003, uh, I went to nursing school graduated, quickly realized that I did not enjoy nursing. So I went and worked in restaurants for a while. And that's hard work. That's not anything I wanted to do long term. But I really loved getting to talk to my customers and getting to know my customers and hear their stories and, you know, talk about issues in our community. And I learned that everyone has a story and really inspired me to go back to school and get into journalism. Okay, that's quite a line there from nursing to restaurants to journalism. Okay. <laughs> the newspaper business has changed a bit since you started, which I think is a vast understatement. Let's start with this bit of research from Northwestern University. So this amazes me. They found that one third of American newspapers that existed two decades ago will be out of business by 2025. What in the heck happened, for God's sakes? Yeah, so there's been a steady decline in uh, readership and ad revenue for years, but the pandemic really exacerbated that, just like everything else. And then the post-pandemic economy, major advertisers have always been retail, movies, community events, things like that. And those were all shut down for a while and struggled to make a comeback. So that cut back on uh, marketing budgets and ad revenue continued to go down. 
And with that comes the decline in employment. There's some interesting stats out there. So in 2006, there were 74,000 newspaper industry employees. And in 2020, that number had shrunk to 30,000. Whoa. Right? So, so much fewer. And then in 2020, again, uh, one third of all newspapers laid off employees, and most of those were larger newspapers. So when you have a situation where you have a newspaper covering a community and you keep cutting back on the staff, you lose a lot of local news coverage. And that really is what has always driven people to read the news. They want to learn about what's happening in their community first, and then what's happening outside of their community. That's been part of it. And then the increase in uh, hedge funds and private equity funds as owners has also been an issue. They control half of the newspapers in the country now. Alden Global Capital Hedge Fund just became the second largest newspaper publisher in terms of circulation after Gannett. And they actually just purchased the San Diego Union Tribune. So it's bleak over there. So yeah, it's, you know, it's tough when you have 10 large companies controlling half the daily newspapers in the country. You have unilateral decisions coming down from the top and doesn't look good for local news. Yeah, it really has affected us. I know we used to have a couple of newspapers in town. Now we have one and that one's getting smaller and smaller and there are less and less journalists there. It really affects all of us. You know, the research also showed that every week, two or more daily and weekly newspapers disappear. And many of them, digital only news sites have cropped up. They said most communities that lost a local newspaper will not get a print or digital replacement. Now, why is that? I mean, you know, it costs money to do this. Not a a ton of money. Operating costs are pretty limited when you're running a digital business, but you still got to pay people and you want to pay them what they're worth. So most of the digital sites that are popping up are in urban areas that have diverse sources of funding. Um, Most people have access to the internet. That's really critical, but that also leaves a good portion of the country in the dark. Another fun statistic, 7% of the nation's counties, 211 of them, have no local newspaper. So it's really bleak out there. That leaves about 70 million people with no access to local news or at risk for losing local news. So it's a tough situation. That's terrible. Where are the areas that are not getting any replacements, digital or otherwise? So small communities, rural areas where access to internet can be limited or difficult, um, or people tend to be older, poor, sometimes less educated, and communities that are struggling, blighted communities. So really the communities that need news the most. Exactly. Yeah. You know, on another issue, do you think part of this problem is generational? I mean, younger people, I've noticed, don't have much use for paper news. And us older people, (laughs) we're still hanging on to our newspapers, but there seems to be a real generation gap. Do you think that's true? Yeah, certainly. You know, if you can get everything on your phone, why not get everything on your phone, I guess. But I'm still, you know, a reader of books. I like the physical paper. There's got to be a way still to be able to get the news to everybody. We've just got to figure out what that is. Yeah, I think there's kind of a well-known quote I've been reading everywhere that Warren Buffett said, if cable and satellite broadcasting, as well as the internet had come along first, newspapers as we know them probably would never have existed. (laughs) Would you agree with that? So at first I do, and then I don't, because Kindles are widespread and very popular, and you can read books on your phone, and yet physical books continue to be very popular. Some people just like to have a book in their hand. I think the same thing is true of the internet. And then again, you have that issue with people can't access broadcast or digital news if they don't have the ability to do so, meaning internet access, satellite access, that sort of thing. And there still is a good portion of the country that doesn't have that ability. Okay, yeah. Talk to us about why it's so important for communities to have local news. What's the danger if they don't? Oh, gosh, where do I start there on that one? 
So when you have a community with no local newspaper, they don't have access to information that's necessary to live their lives in a democratic society. And we also just know for a fact that people in power behave better when they know that somebody is watching them, usually journalists, business people, elected officials. There's some crazy things that go on when no one's watching. I did a solution story a couple of years ago about San Manuel and efforts to form a volunteer revitalization committee. And they really have been able to improve the town. But while we were up there, we heard stories about the water company out there and how they were just doing horrible things like shutting people's water off, or they would start billing them for water before they even moved in and, and shut it off with no notice. You know, news coverage out there is really limited. They have a small paper. Um, I think it's one or two reporters, but the water company is also located far out of town. So with no one there watching or paying attention, they can really get away with basically murder. We also know that voter participation drops when people don't have access to news. And then, of course, you have misinformation and uh, reduced trust in the media. If we're not there, people don't trust us when we try to come back. Yeah, there's so many reasons. I mean, how are we even going to know who's running for office except by signs and what their stands are and everything? If we don't have local news, you know, why would you go vote? You don't even know who's running out there or what they stand for. There's so many reasons. And how are our tax dollars being spent? How do you know if you don't have the local news to tell you? There's so many, many things that go along with grassroots democracy that local news is essential for, it would seem. You know, frankly, this is all kind of depressing. (laughs) There's so many reasons why we need local news. So many places are not getting local news. What do you see for the future? Is there any reason to be optimistic? Are there other alternatives emerging at least? Definitely. I think the digital landscape is increasing a lot. We're seeing a real emergence of nonprofit news outlets. Newsletters are increasing too. Substack is just huge if you go on there. Really large community. You know, even if we have small communities, there's libraries and libraries give people access to the internet and that sort of thing. They still have those. It's not totally lost. There's a way to do this. And more and more are popping up all the time. I have hope. (laughs) Okay, well, that's good to hear. And that certainly leads into your exciting new project. But before we do that, I think we will take a music break. Aspen, what do you think? I always think we should take a music break. (laughs) So today you have chosen for our show Nine to Five by Dolly Parton. Who doesn't love that song? Why did you choose it, though? I mean, who doesn't love Dolly, right? But it just seemed really appropriate. You know, I just started this new venture. I'm in business for myself. I got to hustle. I got to make it happen. And I'm not really working nine to five. It's more like 530 until, you know, sometimes 10 or 11 with breaks in between. But that's okay. I'm having fun. All right. So Nine to Five is a song written and recorded by Dolly Parton for the 1980 comedy film of the same name. It's a song that contains complaints about so many frustrations and inequities and injustices within a workplace, some of them gendered, some of them capitalist, some of them about how power is so unequally distributed. And it's done in such good cheer. It won the 1981 People's Choice Award for Favorite Motion Picture Song and two 1982 Grammy Awards for Country Song of the Year and Female Country Vocal of the Year. So let's give a listen to 9 to 5 by Dolly Parton. 91.3 KXCI Tucson, Real People, Real Radio. And check us out on the Broad Perspectives page at kxci.org. And we are back talking to Caitlin Schmidt, co-founder of the Tucson Agenda. 
Yes, and we're excited to hear more about that. You and Kurt Prendergast, who is also a former employee of the Arizona Star, are co-founders of the Tucson Agenda. Now, you refer to this as a Substack newsletter. I'm not familiar with that term, Substack, and so I imagine a lot of our listeners are not either. So first, tell us what Substack means. Where does that come from? It's just the platform that we publish on, and it is a community of newsletter writers. Some of them are single people. Some of them are up-and-coming news outlets like we are with a few folks. It's fun because it delivers news right into people's inbox, so you get a daily email or whenever you want to send the email. And then it also aggregates them all on a website that you can go to. So people can actually go to TucsonAgenda.com, and it'll take them to all of our archive stories and issues a community for folks like us who are trying to start something new. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you for that. And tell us what the Tucson Agenda mission is. What do you hope to accomplish with this newsletter? I mean, we really want to provide people with the news that they need to make informed decisions when they vote, to live their day-to-day lives, to have some perspective about what's going on in the community and not just problems, but solutions. You know, what are we doing to tackle some of these major issues that we're all fairly well aware of? We also want to shine a light on the other good news that's out there because we do still have talented, talented journalists at the Daily Star and at the Tucson Sentinel and the Arizona Luminaria and some of the smaller outlets as well and on television. So the other fun part about the agenda is in addition to our own original reporting, we are aggregating news from other outlets. So in every daily agenda, there'll be a list of, you know, six or seven or eight local stories from Southern Arizona and where to find them and kind of a rundown. So if you spend five or six minutes reading our email, you can have uh, informed conversations with people on a variety of topics all day, and you'll be pretty well in the know about what's going on around here. Okay. And so how often is the newsletter going out and, and how much news would it cover? How long is it? So we are publishing Monday through Friday. It's going out at 6 a.m., we heard from people that they really like being able to read their news before they get their kids ready and go to school and start their work days. But we do get a big push in the afternoon, I think, on lunch breaks. And as much news as we want, really. We launched with a very, very long story about Pima Animal Care Center and why they're struggling so much and some context and history as to where all these dogs came from. But then we also have these shorter daily agendas that have little brief stories, sometimes explainers, sometimes wrap-ups, and then again, that news aggregation. So really, it's kind of nice because we have the freedom to cover as much or as little as we want. Okay. So I'm kind of wondering, how did this idea start? Did you hear about other Substack publications that have been successful? How did this all start? Yes. So we are a sister publication of the Arizona Agenda, which is another Substack newsletter that's been operating for about two years covering statewide news and politics. Kurt and I actually worked at the Daily Star with Hank. He covered Hank Stevenson. He covered education for us for a year and did a hell of a job. And he has been really successful. He and his partner, Rachel Langang, have been really successful with the Arizona agenda. And we're looking for opportunities to expand. And with kind of what's happened in Tucson, I mean, we've lost more than two dozen newsroom employees at the Arizona Daily Star in less than a year. This just seemed like a market that really needed more news coverage. So kind of was the perfect time for something like this. Okay. And did you get funding to start the project? How are you paying for this? Yes, we did not. We were operating on a witcher and a prayer at first, but we are subscriber funded at this point. And that's how we aim to operate primarily. We will pursue 
donations if they make sense with our coverage and they're neutral enough. And we are looking into some sponsorships kind of similar in that. But right now we are completely subscriber-based. We have about 320 paid subscribers, about 1,300 subscribers overall. So we're doing good. We've got enough to stay in business for a while here, but we're going to have to uh, get some more conversions out of that to stay afloat or, you know, some grants. The good thing is right now we're a startup company. And so this is basically the only time that we can get grants that will cover operational costs. Um, that's usually not something grants will cover, but they will if you are just launching. So hopefully we can uh, get in on some of that too in our first year. Yeah, you know, I was wondering, this is such an important service for our community. I was wondering, are there philanthropists or corporations or universities that are willing to provide funds for these kinds of enterprises, considering our news crisis? <laughs> we are in some conversations with folks about that and how to do that and, and the best way to kind of form those partnerships and make it work. We've seen what happens working for corporations who are beholden to shareholders and board members, and they don't make decisions for the community. They make decisions to benefit those shareholders. And we don't want to do that. We want to be able to make decisions for the community, for our subscribers. So we have to be really careful and draw a real clear line. And that if you know if you give us money outside of a subscription, we we are not beholden. Still, we are an independent news outlet, and we answer to Tucson and Southern Arizona. Okay. That's a good line to draw there. How do you choose what you cover and who does that? Do you and Kurt fight it out <laughs> or is it one or the other of you decides what stories you should cover every day? It's actually worked out really well. Kurt and I, we worked together at the Daily Star for a number of years. We actually were pod mates and had desks next to each other for years and would talk all the time about stories that we were working on and get each other perspective. And the cool thing is, is that we both have pretty different interests and skill sets. He is excellent with politics, um, with border issues. He's very well versed. I'm learning to love politics a little bit more, but I really am in tune with kind of social issues, quality of life issues. And so really there hasn't been any discussion about who's going to cover what. We have a big list of stories and kind of whoever puts the story on there gets first dibs. And if we need help, we ask for it. So it's, it's been great. <laughs> it's been really nice. Okay, so has there been any research yet on the response of people to these kinds of alternatives to printed daily or even weekly newspapers and, and how successful they are? It's kind of a new thing. They've really boomed since the pandemic. So the research is a little bit early, but there are groups out there like the American Press Institute and Trusting News that are really tracking these kinds of alternative news outlets and what they're doing and how it's working and what works best. So there's a lot of help out there, which is great. We can really learn from each other and we want to learn from each other. And, you know, it seems like one of the great things about them is that they really serve to build trust with readers. A lot of these digital first kind of outlets have a different tone than your traditional newspaper. They're a little more personal. They're a little more community-based. And so that kind of helps to bolster that public trust. And with us, we speak directly to our readers. It's been really weird shifting to being able to say we and our and being able to say when something is ridiculous even. But we get to do that. We get to use our experience as Tuthonans, as journalists, as experts on these topics and bring our own voice to the story, which is nice. And people have liked interacting, I think. Yeah, it must be very exciting to start something so new like this. You can't predict everything, but there's a, a group of people that are trying to do the same thing. And I think everybody's rooting for you. How has the response been to the Tucson agenda so far? Has it been as you expected, better, worse? How has it been? 
It's actually been better than we expected. We announced the Tucson agenda about two weeks before we launched, and we had more than 100 paid subscriptions before our first issue even came out, which was such a great feeling to know that people believed in us and they wanted to support us and they were willing to pay for a product sight unseen before it even existed and to kind of help get us going. We have been asking for feedback from folks and we've been getting feedback, which is great. And we've been implementing that feedback. You know, we had a couple of requests for Cochise County coverage and we've done Cochise County coverage. Um, water was something that people said was really important to them. And we had a fun water story. So we really, really want to make this what the community wants. And I mean, quite frankly, there is so much news out there in Southern Arizona and there are not enough journalists to cover it. So we've kind of decided that if there's someone else out there that's doing a story and they're already doing it well, we'll move on to something else. So I think we can't do this without the Sentinel and the Luminaria and the Star and all these other outlets. We, we can't. Part of what people really like about us is that aggregation. And so this needs to be a community effort to support local news, no matter the source, including our television stations, our public media. We're hoping to work with everybody in some way or another here. I've been reading it since you've come out with it. And a couple of things I like is one is that you do narrow it down to some of the more important stories. And also there are stories I've read there that I don't read anywhere else that I'm very interested in. So kudos to you for that. I'm wondering, what do you see as your greatest challenges already or that are to come? I mean, I think it's that funding piece. And, you know, we're a small business. It's Kurt and I with some help from Hank and we have some wonderful people on the side that are kind of giving us advice. But this is, you know, we're not just reporting, we are fundraising, um, we are marketing, we are our own advertising folks. So it's a lot of behind the scenes things that go into it. So finding the time for all of that is challenging. Learning those skills are challenging. Luckily, there are really good groups and resources in the community. So now that we're up and running, we're hoping to connect with some folks like Startup Tucson and, and some of our other organizations to kind of get some advice about these other pieces. And, you know, quite honestly, it is really weird and awkward and hard to just ask people for money. So that has taken some getting used to. I don't know that it'll, I'll ever be fully comfortable doing that, but maybe that's a good thing. I just got to get good at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you get more used to it anyway. You have to do so much because there's just two of you putting this on. Are you working like uh, 18 hours a day? No, I, I'm an early riser. I'm up at 530. So I usually start my workday pretty early. And then, you know, we take some breaks in the middle of the day and go to the gym or do whatever we need to do and then kind of get back to it later in the evening. Just since part of it is that aggregation. We know that people publish all day and we don't want to miss some of those stories. So they're longer work days, but they are, you know, more fulfilling and, and just fun. It's been really fun. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Your greatest challenge is the financial part. What do you like the best about it? I think what I've really enjoyed the most is the opportunity to kind of deliver news that people aren't finding anywhere else. Like you said, like in that aggregation, we're not just pulling from other news outlets. We're pulling from newsletters, from city council people, from county memos, from things that people wouldn't go out and look for or find for themselves. And the ability to do that and not have to worry about how many page views it'll get is fantastic. That's a tough thing to have over your head is I, I really want to write this story. I think it's important to the community, but how many page views will it get? And will my boss let me write it? That was always a struggle. So I, I like kind of just being able to deliver the news that we want to, that we think is important and not have to worry. And quite honestly, <laughs> um, the page views have been fantastic. We've been getting, you know, 1,500, 2,000 views on every single post, which is great and hard to do with bigger outlets. It's like once that pressure to get those was taken off, they just came on their own. It's amazing. <laughs> okay. And so that kind of leads me into my question. What do you see or hope for in the future for the Tucson agenda? 
I mean, we really want to keep this a two-person operation if we can and potentially grow it, but we've got to get the funding to do that. I'm really excited. I'm kind of blending my two jobs here. And in the fall, we'll be taking on an intern from the University of Arizona. I'm also going to get my students in my public affairs class involved and have them help keep an eye out on some of our smaller municipalities that haven't been covered well, Sarita, um, South Tucson. I haven't read anything about South Tucson in a long time. So I'm, I'm excited to kind of bring those in to give students another outlet, another place to showcase their talent and to keep that mentorship going and to bring in a different perspective. Kurt and I are not young people anymore. So we think very differently than college kids. And these are our voters. These are the people that are inheriting our community, our society. And I'm excited to give them a place to share their voice and share their opinion a little bit. Yeah, we want to stay here. We want to be five days a week. And gosh, if we could bring on 10 people, that would be great. But for right now, we're just hoping to be able to keep it at two. Okay, well, thanks so much for all of that. And we're just about out of time. But can you just tell our audience where they can go to subscribe to your Tucson Agenda if they would like to? It is tucsonagenda.substack.com slash subscribe. Or if you just go to TucsonAgenda.com, it'll prompt you to subscribe. <laughs> okay. Well, Caitlin, I can't thank you enough for coming here. We are so excited about your new venture and to have you here to tell us about it. Good luck to you. But I believe we are more than out of time, right, Aspen? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Caitlin Schmidt. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. And we are very thankful to you and Kurt Prendergast for bringing The Old Pueblo, a new source of local news. And thanks to all of you out there for listening. This is Aspen Green with Kathy Harris. And you've been listening to Broad Perspectives Radio, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Don't forget to find us on KXCI.org. And now don't touch that dial because next up we have Boom Goddess Radio with Jennifer Davis Page. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and we'll be with you next week.